I'm Coulter DeVries with RanchInvestor.com. We give you the tools to build and manage wealth through ranch ownership. I'm Andy Ron, accredited rural appraiser and creator of Montana Land Source, the ultimate resource for the Montana land market. Montana Land Source is the only place where you can find all large acreage listings on the market in Montana today, as well as recent sales. We provide maps, market statistics, and analysis, and Montana land news and events. Find us at mtlandsource.com. Hi, I'm Denver Gilbert, licensed broker and owner of Clark & Associates Land Brokers. We've been helping buyers and sellers of farm and ranch properties in six states since 2005. We've been averaging a little over $100 million in ranch real estate sales annually. Okay, thank you everybody. Thank you for joining us for Season 2 of the Ranch Investors Podcast. This episode is uh, special to me because our guest is Kim Bennett, and Kim Bennett happens to be my first mentor and trainer in the appraisal, uh, in my appraisal career. So it's great to have her in here. She's been appraising for a while. I won't share exactly how <laughs> long. I'll be gracious. But she's uh, probably one of the most experienced um, and accomplished appraisers in the state. Oh, I think it's you, safe to say. So welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you here and we're excited to talk about the market, the current state of the market. Also, you do a lot of conservation easement appraisal work, so that's interesting to us. We want to hear about that, and uh, I'm sure there's no shortage of things for us to talk about. Yeah, we're excited to have Kim in. She is a heavy hitter in the industry of ranch <laughs> appraisals, and she's fearless. She will take on the conservation easement valuations, which a lot of, a lot of people want to stay away from, but she's fearless, and uh, thank you for joining us, Kim, we're, we're very excited to have you. Our, our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So, Andy, um, are we ready to have Kim introduce herself? Yeah, why don't you introduce yourself, Kim, and just give us a little bit of a background. Okay. Yeah, so I'm Kim Bennett. I own Terra Western Associates, and um, I started Terra Western about 15 years ago, maybe 16 now. And before that, I was with Norman C. Wheeler and Associates in Bozeman for about seven years, and had been on my own before that, and I have commercial banking experience. Um and large commercial bank that did agricultural lending. And so um, I'm not afraid to say I've been doing this 37 years now, and um, it's really been a, um, a blessing of a career for me, and um, I've met so many nice people and had such wonderful experiences over the years. So, um, yeah, it's it's evolved, it's changed, it's um, still doing that on a, on a weekly basis right now, and um, just interesting times, so I'm glad to be here. I need to throw in, Kim was a, an early and very enthusiastic supporter of Montana Land Source as well, so I've always, <laughs> I've always appreciated that, because we, we got talking about this a little bit before we're recording, but disruptive technologies, disruptive products like Montana Land Source is somewhat, not everybody out of the chute was so sure it was such a good idea, so Kim was always really supportive, and Kim's a progressive in that sense as far as... Uh, you know, Montana is a non-disclosure state, and obviously that's built into the market and whatnot, but the importance of, nonetheless, there needed to be a certain level of sharing and transparency for a market to function and, and whatnot, so. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Andy, 100%. Um, I, th I was telling you guys before we started that when I first came here 30 years ago, nobody was, you know, you really had to work hard to build relationships in order to find the data to do the appraisal work, and the the difficult thing is, is that to do a lot of deals, you need an appraisal. And some, of course, in our market where there's a lot of cash buyers, um, we don't. But then those cash buyers later down the road will need an appraisal for estate planning or gifting or, 
or that type of thing. So we, we have to continue, continuously add to our sales databases and create relationships with people that will share with us and then share with others when it's appropriate. And so um, in about 2010, we had a large buyers, two, two brothers that came into the state and they were purchasing just an inordinate amount of property. And they were having everyone sign non-disclosure agreements, and so it kind of caught on. Um, and so the market started acting that way, where we were getting more and more non-disclosure agreements between realtors and and buyers and sellers. And so um, became more. It's become more and more difficult to get data. And you know, if you have relationships, typically down the road, you can get the information you need. So it's just tough, but. Um, as appraisers, we do appreciate everyone. I mean, I know I appreciate everyone that shares with me, and it, get, it makes me have a more credible product. I have a more credible report. I can support what the you know what the realtors are doing in the market, the banks are doing in the market, and um, and so and it also gives us a better uh, idea of trends and how things are moving within the market. So. You know, I, I appreciate when, when people can share with us, and, and I try to share with those folks that um, reciprocate or, um, you know, are kind about it. I don't so. know if this has happened to you, Kim, but I've actually, I've actually done appraisals for people, and then that property sells later, and that person won't share Correct. with that, me. Correct. That, that happens from time to time, yes. That's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you see that... Anything uh, around that area where there were these non-disclosure agreements being signed um, for purchases of a new buyer, a, a big-time buyer in central Montana, did that create a larger variance in values? Because without the information or correct, accurate information being disseminated properly, um, it left up assumptions of values. It left up... Uh, unrealistic or uh, illegitimate seller expectations because they they really didn't know what was going on there did it cause did it cause a flux in the market in that area because people say oh we got this heavy hitter here uh, they must be paying out the nose for everything well no because I think there was enough people that knew what they were doing and what they were paying um, you know I, I I think that at that time we were coming out of the recession and what we saw then anyway were people that were coming into the market were doing due diligence again. During the 2004, 5, 6 time frame, there was so much emotional buying going on, so much ego buying going on, so much you know, recreational buying going on that people just were not doing any due diligence. If, I, if they saw it, they wanted it and they bought it. And in that 2010, you know, probably just up until the last two years, there was quite a bit of due diligence going on. They wanted to buy a property. It needed to be at the right price, and it needed to have a little bit of cash flow to pay some of the expenses. Now here we are again back in, you know, right before the pandemic, we were starting to see some really odd stuff going on again. You know, we were having the same thing where there was very little due diligence going on, and there were certain areas where values were starting to spike, and um, and now with the pandemic, there's just just very little. There's just no due diligence. People are just buying stuff. It's just crazy, you know. So um, so back then, I think um, what it affected was, um, if anything, it was hard to get enough sales data to prove that the market was stabilizing. So um, 
we had some lower sales, we had some foreclosure sales, we had, you know, so we only can use what we have that's in the market. And if we don't, we can't get all of the comps, we can't just guess that that sold for X, you know. So we have to gather the data and kind of bracket it. And um, hopefully we have everything that we need to get it accomplished. But um, yeah, I think it was causing um, just a, a lack of data overall. That was the difficult part of it. But I don't think it affected market value so much. So having just pulled together a presentation on the market and, and looking closely at the last couple of years, I can confirm that, that the last two years, the, the spike has has started. Things were a little bit flat volume-wise, mm -hmm. particularly, you know, up until two years ago. It was mm -hmm. a little surprised to see, confirming what you're saying, it was pre-pandemic. I mean, 2019 was mm -hmm. a was a jump, and it's, it's yeah. the same trajectory into 2020. But, you know, I'm doing, 21. I'm looking at paired sales analysis and sale resales and that type of thing. And when you get outside of the, some of these hotter areas like the Gallatin Valley, um, we're not we're still not, you know, we're, see, we're seeing appreciation, but it isn't massive. I mean, we might have something that have sold, sold five or 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago for, um, you know, a million, but it's a great site, has a river or whatever, and it, it might have doubled. You know, we might have some of those one-offs like that, but right. most of these larger places are in that six, eight, 10% um, appreciation. And what I'm doing is trying to use the most recent sales I have because it takes into consideration the market and what, what we've done. I'm trying not to go back more than two years right now. Yeah. So I don't have to time adjust that much. So, um, yeah. And we have seen some, but we have seen some major sales, you know, record-setting sales in some areas. If, so. if all markets are cyclical and if history repeats itself, what are your projections for coming out of... 2021. Um, if we look back at 2006, Andy, as your data starts to decline, mm -hmm. uh, values and transactions volume starts to drop around 2006. Took a took a nosedive, yeah, starting about mm -hmm. 2006. And so that was seven. that was even ahead of Lehman Brothers. That's right. And mm -hmm. and the the financial crisis. Um, so that was almost like a pre market indicator for the crash of some sorts. But uh. Yeah, I mean, if it's going to be cyclical and history repeats itself, regardless of politics, administration, technology, mm -hmm. um, I mean, certainly it seems like we should be expecting a softening here in the next few years. Well, for me, I look at a couple things. The stock market is a real teller about what's going on. When you start getting volatility in the stock market where it's going up and down a lot and, and um people start to get a little antsy and they want more hard assets on their balance sheet. And I think that's what we're into right now. We're starting to see people that are, um, they're just saying, look, you know, now's the time we want, they're back in and again. And that's what we were seeing in 2006. People were really building up the hard assets on their balance sheet. So I think that's one of the things that affects it. And, um, you know, I have been doing this so long that I can feel those cycles coming you know, or I can feel what's happening there. Your bones start to twitch. You yeah. Get, you get, a, you get a, a special twitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like Andy in 2006, seven, I was like, huh, come on, how long can this go? You know, what's going to happen? And sure enough, something happened. But with this particular go round, it's been very odd because it's like, you just, you just, it feels different. It feels different overall. It feels like there's this pressure and pressure and it's pushing and pushing and, and what's happened now is we just have very low inventory of rural properties because 
before what was happening before the pandemic and now with the pandemic and the urban flight and all of that. So it, um, everything that's coming on the market is just, if it's, if it's priced right, it's gone, you know? And so it, there's just this pressure behind it. And when you go and you look at Montana land source map right now, and I know a lot of those properties that are on there, some of them are just not very high quality properties. So they're just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there, but anything with any kind of quality or, you know, any, any B property or a property is just gone. And the listings are just not coming, you know, um, not the kind that, you know, uh, we would like to see as far as larger ranch units, but I don't know, it's a tough time. And, and I've talked to other realtors and said the same thing that you just asked me, Coulter, when is, when do you see this tipping over, you know, and nobody can say right now for sure when it's going to tip over. I don't know what you guys are feeling. What are you feeling, Coulter? Do you see anything? I, I would say because it's so multivariate and there's so much more uh, correlations I want Andy doing for me. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up, uh, Kim, you bring up another one that uh, real estate, farm and ranch is not correlated to the equities market. It's essentially a zero correlation, but mm -hmm. you brought up volatility. Mm -hmm. So could we get a correlation to the VIX, the volatility index? Mm -hmm. And Andy, in your presentation last week, um, you had mentioned that the majority of ranches are selling cash which is cash buyer, which is, mm -hmm. which is night and day difference from uh, the residential market because right now people who are in a $370,000 home can get into a $530,000 home for the same payment because of interest rates. So mm -hmm. that residential is highly driven by interest rates. Uh, we don't see that uh, in farm and ranch because it's cash. What I'm feeling right now, I mean, there's all of those variables you talk about low supply. Mm -hmm. um, farmers and ranchers are a resilient breed. Uh, they're like coyotes. They can hang on mm -hmm. no matter how <laughs> bad things get. There's been a lot of COVID money relief. I mean, your farmers, 40% of their income last year was from the federal government, COVID bailout. So that'll, that'll extend their duration on the land a little longer. But the fact is, is that we have 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day for the next 10 years. They own over 85% of the land in the U.S. There's going to be a, a gray wave and a silver tsunami coming mm -hmm. to where I think the, this, the listings, the supply that's not there today, uh, my fear is that it all starts to hit at once. Mm -hmm. And that, mm. I mean, that will be an abundance of supply. Mm-hmm. And the expectations are likely to be high when they hit the market, even if even if there's a downturn that's evident. Expectations are high, and that's going to conflict with the uh, needs. Their needs are going to be high because they're looking at uh, long-term care facilities. They're looking at uh, retirement. And uh, so their needs are going to be high, and, but their expectations usually trump needs. And uh, <laughs> they're not going to settle for the first offer that comes in, and that might be to their disadvantage. Well, it's interesting that you bring all that up because one of the things that we were looking at before the pandemic was these age categories of people and what they're interested in. And, you know, for a while there from 1990 on, there was this whole desire to have that ranch and have that piece of Montana and have that place where you could go with your family and um, recreate. And and, um, and then it started to shift. And, and we talked about this over the last four or five years that 
people that are in their 30s, early 40s, they just want to have a townhouse in Big Sky where they can just put the key in the door and leave and not have to have any maintenance or worry about it. But in the last year, what I've noticed is a lot of these buyers of these ranch properties are younger. So they've, they've just decided, you know what? We can go, we want to social distance. We want to take care of our families. We want our kids to be, you know, not in high risk areas and we can work from our home. So we're going to go ahead and, and buy a place. So, um, so seeing some younger people coming into that market again, which I thought was a really interesting turn of events compared to what we were seeing before that. There was definitely concern. I've heard older ranch brokers talk about being glad they're at the tail end of their career because they don't see the buyers. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a, you could call it maybe the millennial scare. Right. You know, millennials aren't going to buy ranches. They're, right. They just want to travel and have a townhouse. Right Instagram. There. Just, you yeah. know, I'm part of the gig economy. The the mm-hmm. rental, short-term rental, I don't need to buy. I don't need to buy a second home. So, Why? Coulter, can you sell Instagram photos to millennials for as much as you can real estate to boomers? <laughs> I, I'm not quite an influencer yet. I'm working <laughs> on that, Andy. So That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> if everyone can go out and follow our uh, Ranch Investor Instagram page, <laughs> probably not the amount of clickbait you would expect from Instagram. I think it's a little more modest and tame, but... Um, no, I agree. Kim, do you think that these younger buyers, we'll call them Gen Xers, they're probably 45 to 55, um, they have kids and, and maybe some help from mom and dad who want to spend time with the grandkids mm-hmm. out there. Uh, do you see them being generational wealth or are they new money? Oh, very little new money. Yeah, very little. And and so... Um, and, and those, those guys seem to be buying the smaller tracks, you know, 640 acres and under, you know, where they can have a little bit of everything there, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it's, there's a few that have been self-made, but not very many. I'm working with one young guy right now that is, but it's just, uh, um, yeah. Well, that should be optimistic for us brokers then, because (laughs) if consumer tastes and preferences are making it through to the next generation, that it is coveted and highly desirable to own a Western ranch. Um, the baby boomer generation created so much wealth, mm-hmm. it's going to pass on. Mm-hmm. And as long as the consumer taste and preferences pass on, the money's going to be there. Well, we have, we have some things happening in the market. So we have competing forces of assemblage where you've got large ownerships that continue to assemble. You know, they'll take in their neighboring neighbors and neighboring properties. That's going on all over the state, actually. And then you've got this, you know, rural development close into larger population centers like Bozeman, Billings, and that kind of thing. So you have some subdivision and development going on. And then you have that mid-market where it's just a part-time farm and ranch or recreational investment type of situation. And those people are back online now. And um, as we were discussing before the before the podcast we saw a point in time in 2006, 2007, where we stopped seeing things selling kind of on a dollar per acre basis. And people were just coming into the state saying, I've got 2 million to spend. I've got 4 million to spend. What do you got to show me? And so you just show them everything that's in that price range. And so what happens is you start having a site value for things versus um, dollar per acre. And because some of them just come back and you're just like, well, they paid $7,000 an acre for that. Well, yeah, they just wanted a $1.5 million site or a three million dollar site and so it's kind of flipping into that you know right now too so 
most anything under 640 acres, I look at it from two perspectives. I do it on a dollar per acre right now, and I also look at it from a site value. Would I pay X for that site? And so I think that's kind of probably been going on for the last six months where we've been seeing that kind of flip change. And um, another thing I've seen, you know, while there has been a lot of cash in the market and people buying, paying cash, we do have low interest rates. And so I've seen some other people that have already owned, that already own land leveraging to buy other land. So, um, or leveraging to buy something somewhere else in the country because we've got lower rates on ag land too. So it's, people are using their assets for, for different reasons now where they're coming in and buying a big ranch, cash, and then the next thing you know, they need an appraisal because they're going to leverage it for something else. So that is happening. It does drive you crazy as an appraiser. And I remember that in 2006, that site value thing. And these buyers would come in and like you say, they have 1.2 million and they're looking at a 20 some acre place and a 200 acre someplace. Right. And they don't care. The The 20 acre place has more crick or has a better view or is closer and to, you know, again, not doing due diligence at that time. They, you know, they're both big. 20 acres is big, 200 acres is big. Uh, yeah. so, so not looking at it on a dollar per acre basis. And those those shifts happen and as an appraiser, uh, tracking that stuff and, and modifying what you're looking at and what you're studying and what you're tracking can yeah. be can be difficult. And we're in another market now where the ag, the, you know, the traditional farm and ranch families are really competing against these buyers. You know, it's really tough for them to add on. And in some areas in the eastern part of the state, they're not only competing against um, assemblage buyers, they're competing against NGOs and conservation groups that want to, you know, um, add on and, and that type of thing. And that's affected the market as well. And when we went through the re recession, we didn't see so much of a decline in eastern Montana, partly because of those pressures, you know. And uh, we had some good commodity prices during that, you know, right. when we were coming out and all of that. And so that went really well. Right now, we're... <laughs> Our commodity prices are kind of just hanging in there, you know, and so. Well, also, and conservation easements weren't really viable out east at that point so much. That's really come on in the last couple of years with sage grouse money and whatnot, right? I mean. Right. I think the issue with the east and conservation easements was there was no sales data. So people were having mm. a hard time figuring out how to value them. And so you have to get a little more creative <laughs> when you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But, but now we're getting more and more data out there and. Because um, the been... the common knowledge or the what people thought at that time was there was no diminution in the east because there was not much development potential. Eastern Montana, for those that might not know, is you know kind of more open, less recreational, um, flatter, you know, so it doesn't have that high high end recreation market and development. So um, without having imminent development potential, the view was there wasn't much to take out with the conservation easement, but. Well, the other thing you have going on out east is people in Montana are very property rights oriented. So when they find out they're going to have a partner in the land, they shy away from that. I mean, there was a couple parcels that went for auction out in the east, and they just didn't even get a bid on them because they had a conservation easement on them. And, and um, they just don't want to have a partner. And, and especially there's the stigma of having the federal government involved with your conservation easement too. And that's kind of going away now. People mm -hmm. are starting to see that the easements are actually managed by a nonprofit land trust, even though there's federal funds involved with purchasing it. So there's two kinds of easements I work on, and about 60% of my appraisal work is conservation work, conservation easements, and I've been doing them for since 1998. And they had them back then? 
<laughs> I am proud of mine. <laughs> and so I've worked on about, I've worked in both Montana and Wyoming on these, and I've worked on about 750,000 acres now. Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel pretty good about that. But um, so there's a donated easement, which is um, where the landowner actually donates a conservation easement deed, which restricts parameters and land uses. And um, when they donate those, property rights to the land trust, then they can receive a charitable contribution if there's a loss in value associated with those rights. And then the other type of easement is a purchased easement whereby the, the property is appraised before the easement and after the easement. And then the value of the easement is the difference between those two. And the um, programs that are out there, like the NRCS AL program, Agland Easement Program, um, can, will fund up to 50% of the purchase of those rights. And then you might have some additional funds from like sage grouse money or private uh, land, private open space bond funds and that kind of thing that will um, pay a portion of you know, up to 25% more. And then the landowner donates up to 25% of the value of the easement. So if you have a property that's worth say 10 million before, it's worth 7 million after the easement, the 3 million will be split between, as far as purchasing it, 1.5 million will be paid for by the federal government. And then sometimes they'll have additional funds in there. So those are the different types of easements that I work on. And um, they all have different <laughs> um, types of supplemental standards for appraisers and that type of thing that you have to follow. But um, we see a lot of purchased easements in farm and ranch family environment. And um, Hasn't that kind of turned the perception a little bit too? Because some of these easements actually are being used by operators to enhance their bottom line. So yes. yeah, that there, it is a tool. It's been pretty controversial as we all uh, know yeah. uh, in the last couple of years, but there are actually people using it to benefit in that sense. Right. It's become a lot less scary for people and they get the cash injection and, and can go on or, or it helps with, um, you know, transferring the lands to the next generation and keeping it in the family and that kind of thing. And, and um, the Nature Conservancy has been doing a lot of good work in the eastern part of the state for the last 20 years, helping families keep their ranches going and adding on and that kind of thing. If if the money's there, but it seems like purchased easements are rare. That they, They're not that rare. Like there's mm -hmm. got to be a, a big pool of funds to to pay for that. Right, and the funding has been approved. There's, they actually got quite a large amount this last go-round, so... Um, because yeah. like with Montana Land Reliance, every time, and I'm not throwing them under the bus because they've done amazing work in the Madison Valley and mm -hmm. all across Montana since 1998. You probably worked with them first. And they've actually been since on. 1974, actually, yeah. is when they started. And so. uh, But every time I bring up purchased easements, oh, you know, we don't have any money. You should donate an easement. Mm -hmm. No, <laughs> donations don't work for ranchers who don't need the tax credit. Right. Yeah. So you, you just have to go into it with um, you're you're gonna want to you're gonna qualify for one of the programs either a grasslands easement or a soils easement or that kind of thing. So, um, but um, I I I don't know of too many that they haven't been able to to fund. I mean, if it's a right kind of a property, you know. So get in touch with me and I'll okay. Talk, we'll visit about <laughs> Show it. Show me the money, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. and, and that brings up a <laughs> conversation I had. Get your thoughts on, Kim. You've seen some changes from 1993, a river runs through it. <laughs> that, that brought some interest. 2006 was 
uh, and let's talk about that market after this. But and then uh, today we're in the Yellowstone Kevin Costner era. Oh my um, gosh! <laughs> we can define market periods by movies. Yes, in um, Montana, horse gosh, whisperer. We, yeah, <laughs> God, that is sad. But uh, value judgments aside, <laughs> um, highest and best use is always changing. And a conversation I had with a landowner was, and all all of your owner operators are going to gripe about you can't cash flow land with cows and crops. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's been the case for many many years. I understand that. And that's because the market values other uh, amenities, other rights of your land higher than what the cows and crops can provide for value. Highest and best use is always changing. And I see, and it's really hard for us farmers and ranchers to digest and to accept. Mm -hmm. uh, practicing acceptance is so difficult. God grant me the serenity right. <laughs> to accept the things I cannot change. But uh, I think, Protecting the birds, clean water, um, having people take out there taking photographs, enjoying horse riding, being in nature, listening to the birds, watching the elk. That is, uh, I, I hope I don't get crucified by my farm and ranch clients, but <laughs> that's the future of Western land ownership. It's not cows and crops. And we have to accept that just like a commercial building Andy and I looked at in downtown Billings. At one time on Montana Avenue, highest and best use was street-level storefront retail. It then changed to kind of a manufacturing distribution after uh, that area wasn't needed for street-level retail. And now, because of gentrification, highest and best use is probably uh, condos, uh, some sort of recreation-type bar I guess, uh, wouldn't you say, Andy? Like, yeah, yeah. But definitely condos. And so that that one building, it was maybe it's 100 years old, it has had at least three or four different highest and best uses. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard for us Montana ranchers to accept that the last 150 years of farming and ranching is no longer the highest and best use. Yeah. Don't, don't you think, Cam, that just about every property in Montana has kind of a hybrid highest and best use of investment slash production slash recreation and where the actual highest and best mix is, uh, you know, what the mix proper mix is in that. But yeah. don't most properties have those three elements um, rolled into highest and best use at this point? Well, I'm so excited that I'm sitting with a realtor that's actually talking about highest and best use <laughs> because realtors just don't do that. Right. <laughs> so, cause that is the driving piece of the appraisal process you have to determine what the highest and best use of the property is before you can put a value on it because that's going to drive what data you're, data you're looking at. And then the data drives what the highest and best use is. So you have to get that all right. So, um, you know, probably back in 90, mid-90s, mid something like that, I had a friend of mine call me from Great Falls and he's like, oh my God, this branch just sold for $1,000 an acre on the front range. What is going on? What is that? What is that? What am I supposed to do with that? And I said, well, it's a new highest and best use. It's rural recreational investment. And so a lot of people have um, kind of poo-pooed the income approach over the last many years because, because of this thing that you were talking about, Coulter, where the agriculture income doesn't support the values that we're seeing in the market. But as you're moving west to east across Montana, and you, if you continue to do the income analysis, you'll start to see, you can, you can see really early on when a market's going to tip over with recreational influences. 
And in the eastern part of the state, what we're seeing now is recreational stuff because there's elk where there weren't before. There's elk in the breaks that they're also coming out onto the plains a little bit more. And there's um, there's conservation groups that are in there that are wanting to preserve things. There's um, so there's bird hunters that are out there hunting birds, elk, deer, you know, antelope, uh, antelope all of that. So so we're seeing that. But as you move across the state and you start seeing these capitalization rates start t- t- ticking down farther and farther and farther, you know, you know that you've got another influence in that market. So I, I always do an income analysis on all my comps because I want to see the trend, trend line of that if it's, if it's happening. So you can tell when it's completely flipped over. Like I just did an appraisal in, um, in the Paradise Valley and there was negative cap rates over there. So obviously, even on large ranches, they're not, you know... So people are expecting a return on investment over time. That's where they're getting it, the appreciation. And um, most of these guys that are buying these larger ranches are hold, doing long-term holds of 20 to 30 years. So they're, they're bound to capture something. And to the highest and best use piece, there's the augmenting highest and best use and the complementary highest and best use. So that augmenting use is driving value. So if you're in the eastern part of the state, you might still have agricultural driving value, but you have an, a complementary use of recreation or recreational lease or something like that that they're getting more income from. Or they're having, they have a little timber harvest maybe in the southeastern part of the state or something like that. In the western part of the state, you might have an augmenting highest and best use of rural recreational investment with complementary agricultural income that pays the taxes and some of the repairs and maintenance and that kind of thing. So definitely seeing those flips in highest and best use. Um, and then as things get subdivided down more and more and some closer to, excuse me, closer to population centers, you're going into, you know, part-time farm and ranch, you're going into you know, the second home market, you know, just different kinds of things like that. So the income approach is just it's difficult, but so it don't does you, help us. Don't you think most operators, most farm and ranchers that you brought up, Coulter, that still want to stay in the business need to look at the land as a separate investment? Uh, it's an investment in and of itself. It facilitates their, their operation. But, you know, the analogy I use, and you brought up commercial on Montana Avenue, you know, say we were going to do a boot shop down on Montana and you find a you find a tract you like and it's the price you'll never you're never going to buy that piece of land with your boot business but you're looking at that piece and you think it's a worthwhile investment in and of itself and you say you know what I'm going to buy that lot cuz I've I'm bullish on owning that property and I think that's going to be a good investment and I'm going to have a boot business in that building at the same time but I think that's what's happened in the rural land in Montana is I think just about every property in Montana uh if you were going to come up with one highest and best use, you might have to say it's an investment, mm-hmm. highest and best use, because everything we've been talking about, the the production itself doesn't pay for the land or at very low cap rates, but mm-hmm. Montana land has appreciated. We've, we've talked about, you know, cycles of, of dips, but nonetheless, um, on the whole, Montana yeah. is land Since is a good 80s. investment over time. Uh, mm-hmm. So investment is really kind of the dominant highest and best use. And I think you're right, Coulter, some farm and ranch operators still, struggle um mm-hmm. with that reality they, they do and they don't i mean they sure they sure see the value of right. land um, and especially when it comes time to sell right they <laughs> they try to attach land to the business they try mm-hmm. to see land as a tool or a machine of the business and it's not it's its own investment mm-hmm. that has a longer hold period a longer uh, investment horizon it doesn't depreciate like your cows and equipment mm-hmm. um, it doesn't cash flow it's, you're not going to be able to 
improve your cash flows that much off of land, maybe 30% if you're a rock star, but uh, you can improve your cash flows on the, from tractor work. You can improve your cash flows from better cows, uh, better management of that operation. But yeah, the, the paradigm is still stuck that the land is part of the business and it's not, it's, it's an independent investment. Yeah, I would agree. It's growing on, it just does its own thing. You know, if these folks are, are debt free, then they can do what you're talking about. They can really manage their operation in order to get, you know, the return they need. Anytime you start having a, a large debt associated with a, you know, an agricultural operation, that's when we have debt servicing issues, you know? So, but, um, yeah, we, we're just in the grips of that. And I, I've been changing from my highest and best use from rural recreational investment on some of these to just rural investment. You know, and even though people still recreate on it, they see that it's right next to this area that's just going to, you know, blow up or something. So they're, they're buying it, you know. It's just, yeah, like these things are changing. Yeah, and it's so qualitative and values-driven, and it, it's, it's so hard to adjust to change and it's it's difficult when feelings are involved because people don't like the thought of losing their identity and and right. uh, this transition of highest and best use is a loss of identity to a lot mm -hmm. of yeah that's a good point i totally agree with you on that it's it's tough um yeah no that's a very good insight well, as usual, this has gone by lickety split, so we're getting close <laughs> to wrapping up time here. Any any last thoughts? Any last comments that we want to get in here before we wrap up our episode? Well, I'm just really interested to see where this goes over the next year. You know, just to see yeah. how it, how it uh, plays out, and um, I just hang on, see how it goes. It really is about supply and demand right now. I think we just don't have the supply, and the demand is continuing to get high and so we'll just have to see where it goes. Yeah, Thank I, you. I agree. I mean, I we're not out of COVID yet, but it kind of feels like maybe that market influence is waning or should be waning, but we're not, we're not seeing any slowdown in our market. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see what carries forward. Yeah, we have summer coming, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, well, it's a real strong start of 2021, that's for sure. Lot, lots of good data points, Andy, for your covariance of correlation that's analysis. Right. <laughs> I mean, now, now we've got the VIX. We need the M2 money supply because of these cash purchases. Uh, we need gold correlations, so... Looking forward to that data. Barometric pressure, <laughs> uh, zodiac. <laughs> Kim, this has been amazing. It's, oh, yeah. it's, uh, thank it's you so much, truly Kim. my pleasure to finally yeah. meet you. Appreciate you reaching yeah, out this you, summer Coulter. to talk. Thanks, Andy. Get some, get some uh, buyers taken care of and hope to do this again. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Before people turn off their podcast, how can people reach out to you and get in touch with you if they oh, have? Oh, sure. Some, they can. Uh, what are your services and, and what are you offering our listeners? Yeah, they can go to terrawestern.com, T E R R A W E S T E R N.com, and that's my website. It has all my contact information on there and all the services we provide. I do appraisals for just about anything. <laughs> so, um, and my phone number is that okay to give out yeah okay 406-932-3067 and we'll, fair, fair we'll, warning kim is in high demand just <laughs> uh, just be aware just be aware and we'll have those links on our website ranchinvestor.com as well as uh, her profile will be posted to our social media uh instagram ranch investors uh, facebook ranch investors thank you thank you kim. thank you yeah.
Thank you for joining us today on RanchInvestor.com podcast. We have a few things of note, uh, some housekeeping to take care of. Coulter DeVries is a licensed real estate broker in Montana and Wyoming. Andy Ron is a Montana certified general appraiser and accredited through the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. Denver Gilbert is a licensed real estate broker in four states. I say this because there are still 12 states that are non-disclosure, meaning we do not have the privilege of releasing private and confidential information from certain land markets. We have fiduciary and agency relationships that we take very seriously and would not seek to compromise these duties. In this podcast, we do not report information pertaining to specific clients or market participants unless it is public knowledge. Our reporting is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice, even though we may have opinions as to what one ought to do when it comes to ranch and land investing. Advice is only worth what you pay for it, and you are receiving this for free. So if you would like further information, please reach out to any of the hosts or guests on your own accord. We enjoy hearing your feedback, so please post any questions or comments to our Ranch Investor private group on Facebook. If you do not have Facebook, please send to comments at ranchinvestor.com. And thank you for listening.